1: Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chapel.
2: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Build Your Network podcast. My name is Eric Skrasinski. I'm one of the co-hosts here on the show. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking all about the art of sales. And We have three incredible salesmen here on the show with us to talk about just that. First up is David Premer. He's widely recognized as a thought leader in the area of sales and sales leadership, has been published in the Harvard Business Review, as well as Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazine. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Cerebral Selling. Next up is Lance Tyson. With thousands of entrepreneurs in the world, only 3% make it over a million dollars. What's the secret? Well, Lance Tyson has the answer. He's the president and CEO of the Tyson Group and has a wealth of experience in entrepreneurship and is a longtime sales veteran and has trained sa- sales talent for some of the biggest names in professional sports entertainment like the Dallas Cowboys, Cleveland Browns, New York Yankees, Miami Dolphins, and the San Francisco 49ers, just to name a few. And last up is, of course, Dan Locke. He is known as the king of closing, but his story didn't always start out that way. As an immigrant from Hong Kong, Dan struggled to learn English and earn money for his family. He began side hustles at a young age, leading him to enter debt up to $150,000. After studying with the greats and taking action, Dan became a self-made millionaire at 27 and an eight-figure entrepreneur soon after, leading to worldwide speaking engagements and becoming author of his most recent book, Unlock It!, you guys are not going to miss one second of this episode, and if one part of the episode gives you any sort of value, be sure to take a screenshot, post your Instagram stories, and tag Travis Chapel with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, let's get into the show. You know, telling your kids that you're in sales, like that's hard for them to
3: understand. Like, astronaut, doctor, accountant, right. they get that, right. you know, but what is selling? Cause you have to explain like what selling is and like, what are you, you know, especially software is, you know, my kids are bigger now, but little kids, they don't get that. Right. So it's, um, you know, it's a really interesting journey, but, There's so much similarity I actually found between kind of, you know, research science, if I can call it, and selling because they're both really hard. They're both really complex. They're both subject to so many different variables and inputs. And I was always just really curious like, how, why do people? you know, hate salespeople and why do they love to buy things? And when I said it like this, they got it. When I said it like that, it was really confusing. So, sure. you know, that's the way I think about sales. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about that journey then. When, when, at what point
0: during your, uh, your, you know, your initial career, did you start realizing that you kind of wanted to be in this other realm?
3: This other realm, meaning in sales or in this other yes, realm of what correct. I'm doing now?
0: Correct. In, in sales. Yeah. From, from research scientists to sales, like what, I just just curious on what experience or what what happened in life where you were like, you know what, I think this is going to be the new path.
3: For sure. Well, actually, I still remember there was there was one specific moment that kind of, you know, put me on the path. And, you know, when you're in science, you know, in, in academia, the question is, okay, like, what am I going to be when I grow up? Is this the thing that I want to do forever? And what does this life look like? Yeah. And unfortunately, like in science, like you only have a limited field of view, like no one's coming to, you know, the science schools and universities and colleges and saying, hey, you know, we're recruiting for selling for sales now, like no one does that. <laughs> right. So at, at where I was, so I was doing a master's degree, at the University of Toronto and they had a career fair and it was interesting they had a whole bunch of like engineering grads come back and talk to you know the students about some of the things they did in like management consulting and, and these kinds of things and I started to think and so I attended one of these these kind of you know talks and I said my gosh, like this, this is, th- I, I can actually go into business. This is really interesting. And a lot of the skills were still transferable. Like when you think about what I was doing, being a research scientist, you're trying to distill very kind of complex, abstract thoughts and, and figures and stats into something that's, you know, manageable and absorbable by, a, you know, another kind of audience. Um, I love to, you know, kind of present and I was always enthusiastic about the things that I was passionate about. So it kind of lent itself really well, but it was that talk that I said, well, you know what, I should start looking into this thing. And, um, and then that's kind of how it started getting into technical sales. Like a a lot of people, when they get into sales, they either start door to door, they work at the mall or they're like a BDR kind of a thing for me getting into the technical side of sales was, uh, you know, really great fit. How immediate or fast or slow was that transition? Uh, it was super fast because, you know, I, I actually, it's funny before I uh, graduated, I was scheduled, I actually got hired by IBM, about eight months before I I was scheduled to graduate and I'm like, Oh, this is great. I got a job lined up at IBM as a sales engineer. And then I got connected to a guy who, so you're talking about networking, right? And connections and through yeah. a totally random. So my girlfriend at the time who's my wife now of, you know, many years, 18 years or so. We, um, she was my girlfriend at the time she had a friend of the family that somehow passed away and we were at the funeral and, and they had another friend of the family. And so my, my girlfriend's mother, my mother-in-law now started talking to this guy's father and they started talking about, Oh yeah, David's going to work at IBM. He's like, Oh, my son's doing like a startup and maybe they should talk. And so we got connected. Anyways, he this, this fellow now is like a lifelong mentor and friend. We've worked together at you wow. know three different companies, but that company was 20 people when I joined and we grew it to 700 people and a $100 million business. We wow. IPO'd, we got acquired. So it, to your question, it was really fast because when you're working kind of in the bear pit, is what I call it, in, in the startup trenches, everything is just so much faster.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so w- w- was there any, did you get any feedback from people when they started realizing how much money you were making with that type of stuff, co- comparatively to the, <laughs> what you initially were doing? Um, like, like, you know, know, the, the crowd that was like, Hey, you're crazy for doing this. Were they kind of like, okay, now I get it.
3: Yeah. You know what? I mean, look, it's, you know, I'm not, I wasn't giving out copies of my paychecks to people. Um, (laughs) like, look, look at this, look at this, but. But you, you know, they're spending money on Facebook ads in front of you, no, like the Ferrari didn't show up yeah. in the driveway. <laughs> <and these guys. laughs> yeah. No, but you know what? The, um, the thing is they, they see like the, the journey, you know, they see, Oh, you went to this company and that company. And then you, you know, you grew into the leadership ranks and then you had an IPO and then you, so, and then you got acquired by Salesforce. That's how I was at, I worked at Salesforce for five years, but I, I worked there because my company, which I helped start was acquired by Salesforce. So even though they're, you know, no one's seeing like the paychecks, they see that the kind of the tr- career trajectory and the responsibility and, yeah, and the growth. Right. And um, yeah, no, I mean, no one, I'm blessed to have a really supportive network where no one ever questioned, like, what are you going to do with that? You know, never yeah. got any pressure from my parents, but, uh, but yeah, it's been, been a great journey.
0: Well, cool. So, okay. So that obviously went super well, your first venture out into that world. So then, uh, so talk to me about the transition now into doing
3: what you're, what, what, what you do now. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, you know, sometimes when you think about plotting the trajectory of your career, someone says to me like, Oh, David, I love your career. Like, could I do, you know, tell me what to do to do what you did. And I'm like, I can't tell you that. Like I, it's just the sum of all the decisions. Some were good, some were bad. Some, you know, took you on a little bit of a detour. So careers are hard to architect, but the thing that I can tell you now in hindsight, kind of 20 years later and, and kind of doing what I do now, which is the most and I've and I've had an I've loved all the, the jobs I've had in my career. I love working with awesome people, but this is the happiest I've been because I I feel like I'm doing what I was meant to do. Yeah. But the question is, like, how do you know that? And one of the, the kind of the way I know was about back when I was at Salesforce. One of the things that they let me do was I just started to write. They said, hey, you know, we love when entrepreneurs come in from the outside as we grow the company. You know, when I joined, there were 6,000 employees. When I left, there was 24,000 employees. And that, that was, oh you know, my goodness. three, four years ago. Now there's like 50,000. So they love bringing people in from the outside. And they said, hey, look, if you want to write, because I had all these ideas being a former customer, how I might be able to help the business even in my, in my roles there. So yeah. I said, you know, it's great. I'd love to start doing some writing. And, and so they let me do that. And I did some more speaking engagements. And, and I just kept writing and writing and writing. And and I did this off to the side, like while I had a regular job, you know, with a quota and and a big team and the whole thing. And over the course of time, I just continued to do that. And when I left Salesforce to be a VP at my fourth startup, I kept writing and I kept doing events like for Salesforce. And I I was like, I love Salesforce, but I I love this, this idea of like sharing learning is the number one thing I love to do, especially from my, my research science roots and, yeah. um, you know, many years later, this is what I get to do. I realized that that was the trend and pattern in my whole career, no matter what jobs I had, it was always centered around learning and synthesizing and and, and teaching for other people. And so I just, over the course of time, said, you know what, why is this not my job? And, uh, and I made it my job now. So top two or three lessons that you've
0: learned about pivoting, because uh, this is a conversation that I've had with a lot of people recently where, you know, some people... Uh, the, the timing of a good pivot, I think is something to talk about because some people I think give up on things too early, but some people I think hang on to something that they should have let go of a long time ago. And it seems like you've done a pretty good job throughout your career of being willing to take a pivot regardless of how massive or, you know, uh, different that, that new direction would be in your life. And it seems to have worked out pretty well for you. So do you have any advice for anybody out there that might be considering something like that right now for their career?
3: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I have a couple pieces of advice. You know, number one, there's never a perfect time, so don't convince yourself that oh, I, you know, I'm going to do this when you know. Yes. There's never going yeah, <laughs> to, never going to be, that, yeah. you know, an ideal time. The other thing is that you know the cost of failure. And look, I'm not here to kind of say what your you know particular situation is. The people who are listening here, but the cost of failure is often much less than what you think it is, mm. right? So you know, people are. It's it's so funny coming from the startup world. And now into Salesforce, all the people at Salesforce would would say, because you know, I was a big fan of like you should join a startup. And people would say like, ah, oh, I've never joined a startup. It's like it's too risky, so much risk. And then I would talk to my my startup friends, and I should say I would say, you know, Salesforce is awesome. You should come work here. And they would say, ah, I don't want to work at Salesforce. Too, it's too corporate, too like too big company. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like these were like my two best friends that they didn't want to meet each other, <laughs> and and right. both was was overestimating like the like the the the, the, the downside, risk yeah I'm like okay great so you join us let's say you're a, you know you're a big company person you want to join a startup what's the worst that happens like the company's going to go out of business and like do you think that's going to happen like the day after you join by complete surprise <laughs> like do you think right. there's things that you could ask to figure out like is the company in a good position so once you start picking it apart you realize like the cost of failure especially when you, if you're in sales and you're very good at sales you'll there's a million jobs in sales, great jobs. So the cost of failure is low. So I would say, don't wait for the perfect time and really scrutinize what that real cost of failure is or is your vision being clouded by fear that is unrealistic.
0: Talk to me a little bit about your sales process. When you say that you're taking score every day, what does that look
4: like? So we do a lot, about 60 or 70% of our business is in sports and entertainment. We actually started, those relationships started off real small. When I owned the Dale Carnegie operations, it was really more of a, I would try to get tickets for, for my salespeople. And so essentially we would trade tickets for sales training and presentation training and stuff like that. Gotcha. And so our, our sales process is really simple. It's an analogy to my book, sales is an away game, right? Because you're, you're literally in the mind of the buyer. And it really follows the pathway. If you think about, you know, probably one of the greatest business processes in the world, it's probably why it's the biggest argument in the world is healthcare. Or when you go see a dentist or doc, right, you go in at some level, they qualify you. Do you have insurance? Do you not have insurance? Sure. So there's a connect step there. Then you go and see a nurse, nurse practitioner, dental hygienist, and they evaluate you then the doc comes in and evaluates you, right? Hmm. So there's an evaluation. And then remember, like business, medicine's a practice. It's yeah. like how Iverson said, we're talking practice, right? So at the end of the day, there's a diagnosis that's a best guess. And so our sales process follows that diagnosis, right? So it's connect, evaluate, diagnose. And then you get to some level when you're making, giving advice to somebody, like a doc would, you prescribe. Yeah, right. right. There's a prescription. And then from there, you dialogue about the prescription. They might say, you know, Travis, you, uh, you have a sore throat. We're going to give you some Tylenol codeine. We're probably going to tell you not to drive, not to drink a beer and drive the tractor around the back 40 while you're on the Tylenol codeine, right? Sure. You dialogue back and forth. And then close. And that's, we have a very simplistic sales process, like, you know, the client list you write off, they utilize that sales process and have big wins. Like, for instance, um, Allegiant Stadium right in your backyard there with the Vegas Raiders. Mm-hmm. We're, we're involved in that process from a sponsorship standpoint. A lot of those partners with a company called Legends that was a partner of the Raiders and uh, a lot of the the premium seating we've helped ourselves mm-hmm. With so and they're really big deals across the board. I mean, they're B two B sales. They're yeah, yeah. six figure deals.
0: I have a few friends who bought them. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and like I said, again, such a such a cool business to be in. But I could not. Agree more with what you're talking about about the process with the doctor 's office and i actually actually we we're launching our uh, by the time this comes out it'll already be launched we 're launching a podcasting course and I threw in a like ethical selling module just because I think that whatever business you're in, you have to be a salesperson, and I think that's the reason that I was able to to jump up a little bit with my podcast was that i I knew how to sell. I had some oxygen that I could pump into the business at the beginning. That I think a lot of people just kind of skip over and hope that they never have to do. Okay. And uh, and so walking people through that process and talking to them that way is a much easier way to go about it than like a lot of the sales trainings that I was taking when I was first getting started. And I'm sure that you've gone through as well, Lance, where they're the more hardcore sale like closing sales trainings where it makes right. it seem like you're a loser if you don't close the deal, and there and like you need to win in the conversation. And there's a winner and there's A loser, and there's you know, do you want to be a loser? And it's like it's just this high pressure selling tactics that might have worked in like 1987 and probably still work a little bit today for more low-hanging fruit or maybe less qualified buyers, but uh will not get you to the next level and will keep you constantly chasing a paycheck for the rest of your life. But most people Think that that is selling because that 's the version of selling that they know, and that 's kind of the same battle that I fight on my show Build Your Network about networking is that people know the wrong version of networking and people know the wrong version of selling, and so they just avoid two of the most important activities that you could be doing for your business networking and selling two of the most important things that you could be doing in your business you avoid because you think it means that it has to turn you into somebody that you're not. But if you, in reality, do it the right way, then exactly the way that you said it, Lance, like you're the expert that's prescribing a medication to take care of a problem. And the patient, when they are in the doctor's office, there's no pressure. They don't have to go to the pharmacy afterwards and get their prescription filled. They don't have to do the things that the physical therapist told them to do with the band and the stretches when they get home. They don't have to do any of it. But guess what's going to happen? In 60 days, in 90 days, they're going to have the same problem that they had when they initially went into the doctor's office. So the question is, do you want to solve your problem? Or do you not want to solve your problem? If you want to solve your problem, here's exactly how to do it. And I'm telling you how to do it. You know what I mean? It becomes so much easier when you start looking at sales as like, look, I'm just trying to help people. And that's why I love Zig Ziglar's quote of, you can have everything in life that you want if you help enough people get what they want. And uh, if you look at it that way, instead of, instead of looking at it as how can I get what I want, you look at it as how can I help the person, the avatar, the ideal client? How can I help that person get the number one thing that they desire? And if you do that, I promise you, paychecks that are going to be really, really big. <laughs> you
4: know what I mean? I 100% agree. Look, people people don't want to be sold. They want to buy. They want yes. a recommendation. I was at a, a spot the other day, you'll appreciate this. So, you know, I'm late 40s right now and I'm, I'm sitting there going, ah, how do we get healthier? So I start to go into this cryo chamber, right? And they have mm. like a in there and stuff and it's kind of it's good for inflammation and stuff, not uh, more preventative. And I was talking to the owner yesterday and she goes, I looked you up. You're in sales training. She goes, you got any recommendation for us? I go, Yeah, I do. I go, your your people lowball because they're uncomfortable with price. Mm. They sell like they would buy. Yeah. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, all they need to do is ask me what what brought me in the door and what I was looking for. And they could easily just Got me to spend the most. I would have yep. bought the whole kit and caboodle because they were just giving me advice. Instead, they cut me a deal and I didn't ask for a deal. Right. Exactly. If they would have just asked me why I was there. They probably, you could charge me 3X more. Right. It's so like, common. Right. It's so it common is.
0: too. Yeah. That's how everybody sells. Everybody's just, they, 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 they so feel such a, money. exactly. Yep. They, because they don't have their money right they implicate every customer that walks through the door as being in the same financial situation that they're in. And they're like, who would pay $650 for float tank sessions for the next quarter or whatever? You know what I mean? It's like, actually a lot of people. And, and probably a lot of the people that are buying float tank sessions and cryotherapy to begin with. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. there's, not a t- there's probably not a ton of broken. You can't people put a price on, on health. That. Right, exactly. And it's health. people that are probably more aware of those things.
4: Well, think about what you just said. People want choices, right? When you roll up to the gas station at this point, they just don't give you the cheapest gas. They still give the option of premium, a mid level, and low. Not everybody buys the low level. Hmm. Some people will buy the premium. That's why it's still a choice.
0: Plus, not right? to mention, doesn't it make you feel a little bit better when you're buying the lowest tier gas because you see the higher price of the high tier gas and you're yeah, thinking about how much money rate, you're saving? Yeah.
1: 100%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: There's one story I want you to tell on that because one thing that I talk a lot about here on the show is credibility and authority through leveraging relationships and yes. leveraging the the trust that other people have taken decades of their life to build. Correct. And when you were going out on your own, you mm. uh, back in the day with you mm. know cassette tapes or CDs or something. You yes, put together, yes. You put together this so stuff. here's a
5: story. So here's yeah, a story. Yeah, so yeah. so I, I was 20 someone years old, right? I had zero credibility. Who is this guy? Who's this like Asian kid with spiky hair and glasses writing copy? What the hell is this, right? So I thought, hmm, what can I do to leverage and actually borrow credibility from some other people, right? Because I was actually talking to a few copywriters, seasonal experienced copywriters, right? And I was talking with them and say, so what do you do? How do you get to where you are? They all say the same thing to me. Here's what they said. Then you got to do a lot of free gigs, a lot of free gigs for many years. You build up your portfolio and finally you can charge a little bit of money. Then after that, then maybe then you do some pay gigs, still not too much until, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, then you can charge what you want to charge. And I'm like, thank you very much, but no thank you because I don't have time. I need to make money, right? So I thought there has to be a better way. And that's, I think, early years, I was already entrepreneurial. I, I was looking for what is a, a shorter path, right? Like instead of, instead of taking the stairs, with elevator, hmm. right? So that's why I seek mentors and advice. So here's what I did. Uh, at the time, I approached before this whole podcast world, I would approach the top copywriters in the world, and I would ask them and say, hey, I'm putting together a product, kind of like a package, an information product. It's something like, you know, the greatest marketing secrets of the greatest copywriters, something like, like that, okay? Cassette tapes back in the days, right? So I approached very well-known, very well-known copywriters, Michael Masterson, some of the biggest names you could think of, okay? Guys, you can't even get to it nowadays, right? I was nobody. So I would email them. I would fax them. i say, I'm putting together this product. I got the first one said yes. And then I leveraged the first one who said yes. And I said, hey, so-and-so is in this product. Do you want to be on it? Now, here's what's interesting. I approached 20, 21 people. Only one said no. They all said yes. Wow. So I learned in an early age, you don't ask, you don't get. Right. And I did ask. These are copywriters back in the days. Back in the days, think about in my early 20s charging $8,000, 10000 $15,000 to create a campaign. These are the, the best of the best. They've sold hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, like hundreds of millions of dollars, crazy numbers, right? So I approached them. Now, here's what's fascinating. So no one asked me my credibility, who I am and all this stuff. So at the time, after I have approached them and said, yes, we don't have the technology that we have today. So here's what I did. I had a cassette recorder. Not the big one, the small mini one, like the smaller cassette tape. There was no technology. So, what I did is is landline, and I would have the cassette player, mini tape, and I would record the whole thing like this. I wish now we have the Zoom and we can record it and and podcast all this. No, I did like this. So, what I had to do. Is I had to have their voice in here and my voice here. Otherwise, it's too loud. <laughs> Otherwise, if you hear my voice and hear them, right? You
0: can't hold the recorder too close to your. You to, could. Now. So,
5: so I did this every single interview for exactly twenty minutes because twenty minutes I had to pause. Excuse me, I gotta flip the fucking tape. Flip the tape because <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Thank you very much. Gotta give me a moment. to flip the tape. Boom, like a... <laughs> right? Yeah, like I gotta do that. So, I interview. And I put together that package. I think I priced it at nine hundred and ninety-seven dollars, a thousand dollars, something like that, at the time. It wasn't designed to sell. It was designed to be the ultimate business card. So now here's what happens. I sit down with the business owner. I was offering my service and I would give them this cassette, like, boom, right? This package I put together. I said, this sells for a thousand bucks. It has some of the greatest insights from all these great copywriters. Right. And they would listen to it. And I would have, I had my friend, a friend of mine interview me and I put one of my interviews in there and they would see, Oh, these guys charging 15, you know, thousand dollars and all that. And I said I charge a fraction of that. A fraction of that, right? And I'm here, sitting in front of you right now, right? Yeah. And that's how I was pitching, quote unquote, my services. And they love it. They love it.
0: to your credit, that pulls in a huge psychological principle called social proof. Yes. And social proof, when mixed with credible and authoritative brands, is by that much more, which is exactly Correct. what you're using. I wanted you to tell that story because I think that it's it's such a good example of what we talk about here on the show so often. And is a good example of how the people that you think are super inaccessible probably aren't quite as inaccessible as you think they are. The way to make sure that they are for sure inaccessible is to never reach out.
5: And That's why like, I, have very, I have very little patience with people. Oh, you know, Dan, I don't know the people. I don't have enough contacts. Like, yeah. I, I see this a lot. I, I don't know. I don't have the contacts. I said, contacts are not something that you have. Contacts yeah. something that you go get. right. No one, is, no one is born with a list of contacts, right? So I didn't know anybody. I couldn't speak the language. So there's no excuse. And when you think about when you approach these people, a lot of time it comes from our own insecurities that we don't want to approach them. Very often, they get actually, they don't get too many people approaching them. Not, not as many as you think. I'll right. give you another example, okay? When I go to events, here's a great tip. When I go to any kind of events, when we could before the whole COVID-19 thing, when I see a speaker's, Here's what most people do. After a speaker finishes their talk, everybody's rushing to them, right? Everything, all this stuff, and then they're crowded by hundreds of people. They don't remember who you are. Here's what I always do. This is when I was younger. Before the speaking gig, I would already know who is speaking, right? And I would approach them. I would email them and say, hey, do you need a ride going from airport to the hotel? I'm a big fan, da-da-da-da-da. Some say no, but some said yes. No one ever asks. I'm telling you. And then also after speaking gig, usually he's the, let's say it's a three-day event. All of them have to eat. All of them want to decompress. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes what you don't notice when everybody's in, let's say in the event, they could be in the hallway, they could be in a restaurant, they could be in a cafe. That's when you go approach them, right? And I, I could not tell you how many times, it's just in, in the bar, something like that. I go approach them. I, I get to spend two, three hours of quality time with these speakers. No one knows. They don't understand the timing. They don't understand how to approach them.
0: Yeah, I lo- love the tactics, love the practical approach there. And it's just, it's just because it's so simple. You it's know what so I mean? Like it's so simple. There's people trying to complicate everything because it seems like it's something that's so out of their reach. No so
5: they- gimmicks. Yeah. Now, nowadays, what we do is even smarter. You'll love this. So when we go to certain events, right, I would bring my, now bring my team. I would bring the camera and my team would approach all the key people that we want to meet. And so I would book my room, and I book an extra room just to do yeah. interviews. Yep. So I would. We would post speakers from the events throughout the whole two, three days, and knock out a whole bunch of interviews. Not only we create content, but now I have a one-on-one. So really? the the action, the business doesn't happen in the event. It's outside the event, That's outside right. the seminar, right? This Who would do that? No one would spend the money to get extra room, and no one would want to spend the extra money to get the camera people. But in this way, I just. Out of like 2,000 people, I just connected with the, the top, the cream of the crop. I right. only want to connect with that 20 people. Yep. That was it.
0: I've done, I've done the same exact thing at events yes. is get a, that separate suite that has some room to set up and exactly. bring some person, set up some interviews and exactly. uh, those connections, man.
1: I could it not It works. Imagine